will start when it's touched. Havlicek touches it. It begins. Three seconds. Hondo off the go. He's got it in a second. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Celtics Beat. My name is Rich Conti and I'll be your host this afternoon. I'll be joined in a moment by my co-host, Jared Weiss of CLNS Radio and the Garden Report. The big story these days is, of course, Kevin Love, and we have two guests for you this week on Celtics Beat that can give us a couple of different perspectives on the impending bidding war for the erstwhile Timberwolves power forward. First, we'll be joined by Mary Schmidt-Boyer of the Cleveland Plains Dealer to talk about the potential interest in Love by the Cavaliers, as well as what the Cavs might do with the number one overall pick in their ongoing coaching search. Later, we'll be joined by Mark Murphy, longtime Celtics scribe for the Boston Herald. We'll talk with Mark about the Celtics' interest in Love. Well, Jared, well, let's talk about love. I feel like I'm doing a testimonial for Match.com or eHarmony. The draft is a little less than a month away. Is this story going to continue to dominate the NBA conversation, at least outside of Miami, Indianapolis, San Antonio, and Oklahoma City? Oh, why not? I mean, what what better story can there be to carry throughout the offseason than a, trade, a big superstar on the trading block? I mean, it's it's NBA podcast dream fodder, basically, for us. So it's uh, the fact that the Celtics are involved with it makes it all the more pertinent for us and our listeners. But you know, when, whenever you have a major superstar in trade discussions, because it has so many implications throughout the league, because not only are you talking about a player being on the move that makes a big impact, but that completely changes the divisional rivalries. It changes kind of the complexity of the league. And it also it has a big impact on understanding what the value of trading and the value of draft picks is, because every single time that a player gets traded, that sets the precedent there forth for whatever other trades come after that. So looking at Kevin Love, all the it seems like all the main trade suitors for him, they're going to center their offer on a top draft pick. So this will be really interesting to see how valuable high draft picks are because low kind of like mid and late first round draft picks have seen a major spike in value on the trade market over the past year or two ever since the new CBA really tightened belts financially around the league. So seeing I mean see, like I'm I'm honestly surprised to see Kevin Love uh, for the first round for like the number one pick in the draft being an option because I kind of thought that the first pick in the draft was pretty much off-limits for anybody in the world at this point. But it looks like that might not be true. Yeah, it's interesting situation in the past that I think is probably the closest comparison is when Charles Barkley was traded from Philadelphia to Phoenix. You know, there's a little bit of a, you know, it was known that Barkley was available at the time and teams were kind of lining up and, and, and making offers. And I believe that uh, deal was centered around a fairly high draft pick that turned out to be uh, Tim Perry. Uh, but, you know, nothing compared to, you know, potentially the, the number one overall uh, pick being part of the deal. It's It's been a long time since I can imagine a deal uh, I guess maybe you'd even have to go back to the Celtics acquiring uh, Parrish and, and the pick that became McHale for the number one overall pick. But even then, the Celtics were basically you know trading down from, from one to three, so it's it's not quite the same situation. Do you think there's any chance that you know, next season opens with Kevin Love still in Minnesota? Absolutely. They don't have to trade him now. They could trade him at the, at the trade deadline if they want to. I think they're best suited trading him uh, to get a top pick in this draft because next year's draft, we don't really know at that point. But 
you you want to make the trade for the pick when the draft order is set so that there's less that there's you know there's no kind of uh unpredictability involved with it you know what pick you're getting you know what player basically is going to be available there so their best interest is to try to move them during the summer if they have to move them and they might i mean they may they might play hardball but you see what happened to the lakers when they did that the lakers had one of the worst uh, collapses in recent nba history after that happened so I think that they're looking at this and they're looking at the way that the Nuggets basically filled their roster with good talent for like a five-year span based on that Carmelo Anthony trade. And in fact, we're better off than the Knicks after that Carmelo Anthony trade. I I think Minnesota wants to follow suit. And if Minnesota can get a good, you know, not necessarily a franchise cornerstone, but a really good starter for the future, a guy like Jared Solinger or like in Cleveland, maybe Tristan Thompson or even Anthony Bennett, if, Cleveland's really given up on Anthony Bennett after one year, which I, which I wouldn't shock me, but I wouldn't expect that to happen. Uh, but we're looking at basically Minnesota having a chance to fill out a roster that's pretty much been a mess for the last five or six years now. I mean, they it's been a while. I mean, maybe it's been a little less longer than that, but it's been a while since Minnesota has had a well-rounded competing roster. They've basically been Kevin Love, and they've tried to put in together with one or two other good players and there's been a lot of inconsistencies health-wise there next to Kevin Love. And then the rest of the rosters really struggled to produce. And they have a chance here to put together a good starting lineup for the future. And if, if they really feel that they're going to lose out on Kevin Love, that should be their main objective. What type of offer do you think the Celtics will ultimately put together? Uh, I, I would ex- I would expect that the top pick in this year's draft and probably the Clipper pick next year along with Jared Solinger. And they would probably need to include a small amount of salary after that. Uh, so it could be really, it could be just their draft pick actually from this year. I mean, there's a lot of options there for them. But uh, the, with the Paul Pierce trade exception, they should be able to, and I think Courtney Lee's trade exception, they should be able to just about match uh, Kevin, be in the range within 120% there uh, to match Kevin Love's salary and be able to pull that trade off. What's plan B if they can't pull it off? Do you just keep adding and developing assets and wait for the next opportunity? Or is there another specific opportunity out there that Ainge maybe has his sights on? Who is the next kind of Kevin Love, you know, in terms of a potential impact player that might hit the market? Uh, I would guess Clay Thompson might be that guy. He's a guy that's just – Golden State has so many guys there. And it's they, they've got a bit of a log jam, and I mean it's it's not really a log jam because they need all those guys to play significant minutes. But there's been a lot of talk about Golden State not being able to financially commit to Clay Thompson and give him that open market salary that he that he wants because he could command not probably not the max, but fairly close to it. We're looking at 12 million at least uh, out on the open market. Although the max is going to go up a lot this year, since the salary cap is projected to go all the way up to 60 million, or, or is it 62 million? So there's going to be a lot of room there for the max to grow. But Clay Thompson is kind of pretty much exactly what the Celtics need. They need a deadly shooter. They need to replace Ray Allen. Believe it or not, uh, they, they they're not able to stretch the floor like they used to, and that's that's clogging up lanes for Rondo. It's making things difficult. It's preventing Avery Bradley from penetrating to the rim with a little bit of confidence because we know that Avery Bradley's not a very good ball handler, and he needs space because he's got really good speed and athleticism. So he's gonna he needs space if he wants to get to the rim, and that wasn't really there for him this year because the Celtics couldn't really stretch the floor very well. So getting a deadly shooter to make the defense focus on what's going on in the perimeter would probably be one of the most ideal things for the Celtics. And Clay Thompson would be that guy. I mean, he's 
he's already one of the all-time great shooters in the league. Yeah, you've certainly heard his name come up in relation to Golden State potentially being a suitor for Love. Another name there's a little bit of chatter about has been LaMarcus Aldridge, but I feel like folks are reading a little bit too much into that situation. He's not signing an extension this offseason, but it's different than the Kevin Love situation in that he hasn't given any indication to Portland that he's not interested in in ultimately re-signing with them. I think that's just a case of the current collective bargaining agreement, just making it you know make sense for both the player and the team to wait uh, to get that done next offseason when, when they really have to. If, if you had to single out one NBA player not currently on the Celtics that'll be on the Celtics roster next season, who would you pick? It's it's so hard to like nail down a good answer for this one. I, I think Anthony Morrow, I think, might fit uh, what I'm talking about here. He's a shooting guard deep off the bench for the Pelicans. It's a, kind of a deadly spot-up three-point shooter, and he could come at a pretty cheap price. So that's, I feel that's more of a safe answer just because they can give him like a million dollars or so and get him in there. Uh, Gordon Hayward's a guy that I do think they're going to make a significant offer to. I don't think it'll be more than $11 million which I think might be a little high for Gordon Hayward, but they're going to go for him. I, I would expect the Jazz to match on that offer, but I don't see the Jazz wanting to go all out. And, of course, that completely depends on if they draft Aaron Gordon because if they draft him, I, don't, there's, there's just, I really don't see them keeping uh, Hayward around because I see too many similarities there. And you don't want to pay that significant money to Hayward if you've got another player next to him that's a very similar player. Yeah, I think Hayward's a good choice. I think Omer Sheik, I think, is another name. I think that I, I wouldn't be surprised to see suiting up in the green next season when, when, when camp breaks. Well, let's go ahead and bring in our first guest and get some insight into what role the Cleveland Cavaliers may play in this scenario as it unfolds. We're joined now by Mary Schmidt-Boyer, the Cavaliers insider for the Cleveland Plains dealer. Our interview with Mary is brought to you by the Boston Sports Connection. For all your Boston sports talk, tune in every Tuesday evening on CLNS Radio with CLNS content manager Sean Backey. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Thanks for having me. I imagine the big news in Cleveland is still, of course, last week's NBA draft lottery with the Cavs securing the number one overall pick for the third time in the last four years. What was the mood in Cleveland like after the drawing? Elation? Sheepishness? Uh, what, what were folks feeling out there? <laughs> Shock, I think, is probably the most accurate word. Uh, you know, they had a 1.7% chance uh, at getting the number one pick, which is actually worse than the 2.8 chance uh, they had to get Kyrie Irving. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it, it's their streak in the lottery, you know, back-to-back. Uh, the only other team to do that was the Orlando Magic in 92-93, but no team has ever had three in a four-year stretch. So. Pretty shocking, and then, of course, elation, since uh, this year's draft is a lot stronger than last year's draft. Exactly. If the Cavs go ahead and use that pick, which direction do you see them going? Andrew Wiggins, Joel Embiid, and Jabari Parker seem to be all in the mix. What are you hearing? Yeah, obviously, there's there's three players that that, um, have separated themselves from the the mix. Uh, You know, there's some question about Embiid's physical status how many teams he will work out for, how many teams his agent will release his medical records to. Um, you know, and so the Cavs certainly would be in that mix. I think, based on what I'm hearing, that they prefer Wiggins a tiny bit over Parker, um, primarily because of his willingness to play defense, whereas Parker's defense was not very good, pretty much non-existent. So um, I think... 
they're they're likely deciding between the two Kansas players, but um, it's a little early, and, and they've been kind of preoccupied with their coaching search this week. So that's taken uh, taken all their attention this week. The other big story making its way around the NBA the past couple of weeks has been the availability of Kevin Love. The number one overall pick has put the Cavs in the discussion of potential destinations for Love. How much attention is that possibility receiving in, in Cleveland, and how realistic is a, a scenario is it? Lots and lots and lots of attention. Um, is it a realistic scenario is a very good question. They have adored Kevin Love for some time. They made a, a, an offer last year of the number one pick in the draft with uh, Tristan Thompson and Deion Waiter, which the Wolves pretty much rightly uh, turned down. Uh, but a couple things have happened since then. One, this draft, again, is much better than last year's. And two, Kevin Love reportedly has made it pretty clear he doesn't intend to sign an extension. Uh, with the Timberwolves, so um, thereby pretty much forcing their hand into trading. So is it realistic? You know, the, the problem is, would they make this deal without some guarantee that Kevin Love would sign an extension? And if they got Kevin Love, would that be enough to lure LeBron back the following summer or, you know, perhaps this summer? Obviously, he hasn't made known exactly what he plans to do uh, regarding uh, opting out or not. So it's big talk here. Um, this is probably the best chance they've had since LeBron mentioned the fact that he'd at least think about returning to Cleveland. So I don't know how realistic any of it is. Uh, the uh, The last time the number one pick in the draft was traded was 1993. So um, though a lot of teams talk about it, a lot of teams aren't able to do it. And I'm not sure the Cavs will be able to do it either. They'll certainly get a good player if they keep the pick, but the player won't be the caliber of Kevin Love. And you mentioned LeBron James, and of course LeBron can opt out of his current deal this offseason as well as next season. How would a return of LeBron be received? Would Cavs fans kind of forgive and forget and welcome him back? Or is the resentment from his departure still pretty strong? There is a lot of resentment. There has been a growing chorus of people who would welcome him back. I think, you know, only a couple of, you know, 30-point victories would probably change a lot, <laughs> change a lot of minds. So every time we address this topic, we get tons of emails saying, you know, he can stay away and we don't need him. And and it's it's very hard to say. I think it, it's easier for people to say what they'll do before it actually happens. He is still a polarizing figure here in Cleveland, but the drastic improvement of the Cavaliers might be enough to temper some of that distemper. <laughs> Do you think that a scenario involving Le- LeBron is something that the Cavs are actively factoring into their off-season planning, or is it more of a media fan kind of wishful thinking thing? You know, I, I don't know how actively they're figuring it in. It's certainly, it would be hard to ignore the possibility. It's, it's clearly something they've thought about, uh, you know, they structured their uh, a lot of deals so that they would have a uh, maximum salary cap room last summer and, or this summer and next summer. So they're in a position to make it happen. Nobody is sure about the actual likelihood of it. And, and, and frankly, that probably includes LeBron James at this point. And you alluded to the LeBron and Kevin Love scenarios being intertwined somewhat. Does bringing in one make it easier or harder to bring the other one in? Is it a chicken or egg thing where, you know, one move is is the domino needed for the other to fall or vice versa? I think 
the Kevin Love scenario would have to happen first because otherwise the Cavs are not good enough to entice LeBron to return. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's clearly in uh, championship acquisition mode, and the Cavs are far – well, you know, they're not ridiculously far from the playoffs. They, they were in the playoff hunt until the end of, uh, you know, the last weeks of this season, but um, not close enough, I don't think, for LeBron to seriously consider. They need another big piece before he's going to realistically consider returning here. And, of course, with the contract situation out there, Kevin Love kind of holds some of the cards in this situation, kind of flipping things around. Are the Cavs minus LeBron an attractive enough situation for someone like Kevin Love? That's, you know, that's the question. Obviously, if they trade for Kevin Love. Uh, you know, Kevin would, would have to report this year, and then he could decide next year whether he wanted to stay or not. The other thing is they can't really sell this as a major rebuild or, or, or because it would be illegal for them to speak about LeBron James uh, to Kevin Love. So, you know, I'm sure they wouldn't mind leaving some newspapers around, you know, that address, attract the, or, uh, you know, address the Kevin Love-LeBron James pairing. But, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're a bit hampered in that they can't really go into detail with Kevin Love about what their grand scheme is, if in fact this is their grand scheme. I don't know how it can that be if you have any kind of chance at all at getting the best player in the league. And what other options are the Cavs evaluating at this point with the three guys we mentioned earlier, and I guess Dante Exum is kind of creeping into that mix, with those guys all being in a scrum at the top of the draft, is maybe moving down in the draft a couple of slots and picking up additional picks or players from a team that maybe has its heart set on one of those guys in particular. Is something like that a possibility? You know, it's a possibility. I keep going back to the fact that after winning the lottery, David Griffin, the Cavs' new general manager, said they were in, they wanted to radically improve, and I don't think radically improving involves a, a 19-year-old draft pick. No matter how talented, unless it was LeBron, no matter how talented any of these 19-year-olds are, that is not going to lead the Cavs to radical improvement. I think they are very, very clearly looking to move the pick for a. a um, an established NBA star, and so, frankly, I think if they end up making a pick, making a pick and keeping it, I think they failed to do what they really are hoping to do. Yeah, that's certainly a dynamic Celtics fans are familiar with, kind of in, in a little bit of the same boat there. And we've talked about Love, we've talked about LeBron, obviously. Are there other names that you're hearing there that, you know, in terms of an established veteran that might be part of this mix in the, in the Cavs' plans? You know, it's funny, I actually threw some names out. Another name that is often linked uh, or uh, has been uh, mentioned sort of in relation to Kevin Love or as an option to Kevin Love has been LaMarcus Aldridge. All the names that have been brought up are in similar contract sta- uh, mm-hmm. you know, similar state as a Kevin Love's contract with Marcus Aldridge. Same thing, contract expires next year. Um, Marcus So or Zach Randolph. Now, Zach Randolph actually can opt out this year. I'm not really sure what's going on in Memphis right now, so um, perhaps they would look to move some of their guys. But, again, it's a, a lot of these are risky moves because of the contract status. And none of them are uh, established stars who are in the middle of a contract that would give the Cavs a couple years to improve and, and um, you know, persuade someone to stay. I will say that the Cavs did make a similar move to acquire Luol Deng, whose contract expires this summer, um, 
although the, in giving up Andrew Bynum, they were happy to give up Andrew mm-hmm. Bynum. So the the, the um, deal that they put together w- is was much more um, much less painful than the cast that, than the sort of package they would put together to to acquire a player like Kevin Love. Earlier, you touched on the Cleveland coaching search, and Mike Brown was dismissed one year into his second go-round with the Cavs, and many observers thought he was an odd choice at the time of the hire. Was his most recent tenure in Cleveland kind of doomed from the start? I wouldn't say doomed from the start, because when they brought him back, they were confident that he would, in fact, be able to you know, help the team improve its woeful defensive performance. That's what he does. The problem was, Unlike his first time here, when LeBron bought in, and thus everyone else bought in, I don't think the, these particular players ever bought into Mike's system. This is not uh, David Griffin. Uh, for years, Chaz General Manager uh, Chris Grant used the word um, process and culture. David Griffin's word is fit, and mm-hmm. and he doesn't think all these pieces fit together. So we expect some sort of roster turnover, upheaval, uh, regardless of Kevin Love's arrival. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, David Griffin will be looking at trying to get this roster to fit together better, um, regardless of who's the coach. And, and so some of it was Mike Brown's fault, and, and some of it just was the group that he had to deal with. And some of the names that I've heard bandied about with regard to the Cleveland opening are uh, Celtics fans will be familiar with Tyron Lue, of course, was an assistant under Doc Rivers, and former Memphis coach Lionel Holland seems to be in the mix. Is there any sense of a frontrunner out there? No sense of a frontrunner. Uh, another player who interviewed and was very happy with the results of his interview was Chicago Bulls assistant Adrian Griffin, who I will say was rumored to be the frontrunner within about 10 minutes of Mike Brown's firing. A, a rumor that was denied to me, and yet he was the first person to interview. I don't know that there's any significance to that other than it was just a scheduling, you know, quirk or, or you know, he, he was available first. I don't know if if the first interview necessarily makes him the, the leading contender. But Alvin Gentry is another name that we've heard in the mix that the Cavs have mentioned uh, or have been reportedly interested in Kevin Alley and Billy Donovan, uh, those don't seem to, Kevin Ollie clearly re-signed with UConn or re-signed an extension with UConn, and, and we're not quite sure where the Billy Donovan um, interest stands. I, I was told uh, by the Athletic Director of Florida that the Cats had not asked for permission to speak to Billy Donovan, uh, and yet in the SEC spring meetings, Billy Donovan stopped short of kind of guaranteeing that he's being that he would be back. So not really sure what to make out of the Billy Donovan rumors and, and uh, whether, there's, uh, whether there's smoke, fire, not quite sure what that's all about. And certainly Adrian Griffin is another name familiar to Celtics fans for his play for the team back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And earlier you mentioned, you know, the concept of fit and how some of the uh, the challenges with how the pieces there fit together really impacted uh, Mike Brown's uh, job as coach uh, this past year. And one of the things that seemed to hold the Cavaliers back was the drama between young guards Kyrie Irving and Dion Waiters. How big of a factor was their lack of chemistry? And do you see that situation getting resolved this offseason? I think they're going to have to do something to address that situation. Obviously, if they want to make big deals, those are the pieces. You know, I see them more probably likely to trade uh, Dion and Kyrie 
And the thing is, there isn't that much drama. They really don't dislike each other. The problem is that they play exactly the same, and so they're not good on the court together. The ball stops with both of them, and frankly, even with Jared Jack in that mix. And it's less a a personality issue than just a a style issue. And my other suggestion is quit trying to make them play together. You know, what's wrong with having them play on two different units. You know, there's a six-man award for a reason. That's an important position on an NBA team. So, you know, young players, of course, think that if you're not starting, it's an insult. And, and but, you know, as as we all know, that your best, your best five players aren't necessarily your starters. So he has been slow to embrace that role. But I do think uh, he matured a great deal this year. I think that the firing of Chris Grant midseason really woke Dion up to um, how his actions can impact others. Uh, and I saw a lot of growth in him toward the end of the season. You know, two other young players that were very high draft picks, Tristan Thompson and Anthony Bennett, have, have kind of struggled to develop a little bit. What's the feeling out there in Cleveland? Are they part of the future in terms of a Cavs team that might contend? You know, again, everything is a bit up in the air here. Part of it might have to do with who the coach is. If, if, if you're hoping to make uh, a mega deal, you have to be willing to include pretty much anybody at this point. So hard to know at this point in time going forward. David Griffin has said nobody is untouchable, and that obviously includes Kyrie. He, he knows what he's saying. So uh, I think... David Griffin is going to look at every and all options in in, in trying to, uh, as I said, make a better fit for the Cavaliers next season. You're listening to Mary Schmidt-Boyer on Celtic Speech. She's the Cavs insider for the Cleveland's Plain Dealer. And you can find Mary on Twitter at PDCavsInsider. Well, thanks for joining us today, Mary. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jared, point blank, if Cleveland is willing to offer up the number one overall pick in a deal to bring in Kevin Love without any assurances that he'll extend his deal, is there any scenario where the Celtics can beat that deal? There's no scenario where anybody can beat that deal. I mean, that's what, what more could someone ask for than the number one pick in a loaded draft where you're talking about some possible franchise cornerstones at the top? I mean, I would trade Kevin Love in a heartbeat for the number one pick, and I have no idea why Minnesota hasn't already made that trade. I would only assume it's because Cleveland hasn't officially offered it yet. But if Cleveland is crazy enough to make that offer, and I do think it would be crazy to make that offer, I would absolutely do it. So you don't think there's any scenario where uh, Minnesota might value established players more in terms of not wanting to maybe take the step back that bringing in a you know a cornerstone who's 19 years old kind of implies that they they might look for a deal with a little bit more in terms of actual you know veteran talent. Well, the, the thing is, is Kevin Love is really young for a veteran. He's 25 right now. So he, it's not it's not the typical trading a guy in his prime for a draft pick trade because he is only 25. I mean, there's while, while the rookies at the top of the draft are all basically babies, or a lot of them are still in their teens. But so there is still a five or six year gap there between Kevin Love and the top draft pick. You're still you can still keep Kevin Love and still develop, uh, you know, maybe take a year or two to develop your team around him and then have a great team around him while he's in his prime. So it's not like trading Ray Allen at age 30 or 31 where you have to win now with Ray Allen. So it's, it's a different scenario with Kevin Love. And that's what makes Kevin Love's value really, really high is that even though he's only kind of a one-way player 
or I guess a one and a half way player, since I would consider rebounding to be kind of the third element of a uh, of basketball. But he he's not he's not really an impactful defensive player. And you have at the top of the draft Joel Embiid, who, if he's healthy, which he looks healthy right now in these workouts that we're seeing, uh, and of course he's working out against himself basically, but he looks, he really does look like Akeem Olajuwon. He looks like a seven foot tall Akeem Olajuwon. And it really isn't a far fetched or exaggerated comparison. He has the skill set that's pretty much unlike any center that's came into the league since Akeem. He has just an unreal, uh, just unreal post moves for a guy that's played so little in his life. I mean, he's only been playing apparently for about four years or five years or so. And he already has fantastic post moves. He's got good footwork. It needs improvement. Uh, but he can he can attack the rim with absolute just energy and power and athleticism. And he's got a pretty good knockdown 15-foot jump shot. I mean, that uh, have a 15-foot jumper as a center coming into the league is extremely rare. It's almost unheard of. I actually don't think I can ever remember seeing a low post center that came into the league with a de- with a knockdown 15-foot jump shot already. So if he can continue to stretch that out, he's, you're looking at a guy that's on the level of Tim Duncan or Akeem Olajuwon, and that's, I mean, that you can't really ask for anything better than that. I mean, the only thing better than Akeem Olajuwon pretty much in NBA draft history was the guy that went two picks later, Michael Jordan. Yeah, obviously Embiid, I think, is that one player that can really push a team kind of into the forefront. And if I had the number one pick, overall pick, he'd, he'd be my pick there. Well, let's turn our attention kind of back to how the role the Celtics may play in the Kevin Love's Week Stakes by bringing in our next guest. Our next guest is Mark Murphy of the Boston Herald. I'm sure everyone is familiar with Mark's work. He's been covering the Celtics since 1988. Our chat with Mark is brought to you by the world-renowned BeatsAndEats.net. CLNS founder Nick Gelso and Celtics beat regular Ty Ray bring you a steady diet of food, comedy, music, sports, and more. That's BeatsAndEats.net. Well, welcome to the show, Mark. Great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Now, the hot topic of the past couple of weeks has, of course, been Kevin Love and whether he could be part of the off-season fireworks that Wick and Danny talked about as the season drew to a close. What's your take? How realistic is that the Celtics are going to be players in this? I'd be very surprised if the sixth pick is enough to be the pivotal piece in the deal for Kevin Love. Uh, A lot of teams are lining up for him, um, including Cleveland, who... uh, you know, there are some indications out of Cleveland that Dan Gilbert really doesn't care if Kevin Love doesn't want to commit at the moment to an extension with the Cavaliers. They they still like him as a way to perhaps bring back LeBron James. I mean, it, it would be a wild gamble if they took it. But, you know, that, that's the sort of thing that the Celtics are competing against. I mean, teams with a lot more to offer than they do going for love and uh you know they would they would obviously have to hold on to Rajon Rondo if they wanted to make that work but um I'd be very surprised I, I'm not saying it's impossible but I'd be very surprised when all the dust is settled where do you think love ends up I think that's really hard to say I mean his supposedly his two preferences at Golden State and Chicago both uh both contending teams, uh, and he would have an incredible impact in either. Uh, neither team has the stockpile of draft picks to offer that some other teams have. Um, 
the Celtics can certainly offer volume. You know, they have enough first-rounders over the next four years. I'm just not sure. They just don't have that top pick. And, I mean, Minnesota will be looking for something really big in terms of, you know, they're looking to go young, so they do want a high draft pick. Now, you mentioned Dan Gilbert's willingness to make a deal for love without assurances that he'll extend. And recently, Danny Ainge talked about willing to do the same thing, um, you know, without a commitment to a contract extension. Is that gamesmanship on Danny's part? Is he being reckless? Or is he just that confident in the stability of the organization and its ability to create a comfortable and desirable atmosphere for a player like Kevin Love? I think I think that, you know, part of it is... Uh, confidence in what the Celtics are all about, confidence in their history, um, confidence in being able to pair love with a player like Rajon Rondo um, and try to build. You know, they they aren't looking for a long-term rebuild here. They would, you know, these these draft picks are assets. Uh, A lot of the players on the roster are assets. They're hoping to turn this around as quickly as they can. And so, you know, I mean, I think he, given the chance to try and convince Love to stay, I think he would take a shot at that. You know, it's a terrific gamble. It's a, you know, it's a worthy, it's a worthy move. And a lot of the pro and con discussion about a potential deal for Love is whether he's enough, along with Rondo and whoever else remains in Boston, to put the team back into championship contention. And you know, this strikes me as largely irrelevant because a deal for Love kind of opens up the door for other moves. What's your take? What other types of deals would Ainge be looking at if he's able to bring a Kevin Love to Boston? Well, if he if he did bring Kevin Love to Boston, you mean? Yes. Um, well, that would mean that either Jared Sollinger or Kelly Olenek would go. My hunch would be Sollinger. Um, Sollinger and the number six pick, uh, perhaps even another first rounder. You know, you'd have to, you know, I think they would like to move Jeff Green as well, although, you know, Jeff Green is of limited value to a team like uh, Minnesota. And, you know, they would love a young player like Sollinger, but. Green is getting along, and he's uh, he probably makes too much money. But that, you know, those those would be the piece. That would be my guess at the pieces they would have to give up. I mean, you know, that there's no indication that they're having that talk right now. But you know, Minnesota's going to be getting an awful lot of calls, and people up there have to be very disappointed. It seems like every time they get a great player like. I like Kevin Garnett, they end up losing him. And what other types of deals besides the Kevin Love deal do you think Ainge might be looking at this summer? Well, they were, you know, they they didn't come close to it, but they were certainly in the discussion for uh, Ajik from Houston. Uh, you know, they he's a terrific center who's not getting any use down by the Rockets and Ron Ron Adams the Celtics assistant had him in Chicago and considers him maybe the best defensive player he's ever coached so they have a guy on staff who can certainly vouch for for the guy um, and you know you 
if they're not bringing in love, I, I think that puts Rondo into play. Uh, Daryl Morey down in Houston would love to get a guy like Rondo into that mix with players like Harden and, you know, but the, you know, it gets a little complicated. I mean, I'm sure the Celtics would get a guy like Chandler Parsons back. They'd probably have to take Jeremy Lin back. Um, the Rockets had been interested in Brandon Bass. I'm sure he might be part of that discussion as well. And that's more of a lateral move. I mean, if you're giving up Rondo, you know, then and you're getting back volume, I mean, the Celtics need a big scorer. Well, there's not going to be a big scorer in a trade like that. Now, fans are getting a chance to see Russell Westbrook take his game to another level in the conference finals against the Spurs. The idea of a Rondo for Westbrook swap has been floated in the past, and, of course, Westbrook was Love's roommate at UCLA. Is that a deal that Dange might still investigate, or has Westbrook elevated his game too much to you know, really make something like that anything more than a pipe dream? Uh, I, I personally am not as big a Westbrook fan as some people. I mean, I think that the guy can sort of go outside the team a little too often. But even up, you're probably not going to get Westbrook for Rondo at this point. I mean, Rondo has to reassert himself. He probably needs another season to get back to where he can be. You know, you know the old saying that it takes. It's the second year after knee surgery where the guy gets back to form, not the first. And that that's certainly the case of Rondo. I mean, I don't think he was uh, playing at 100% by the end of the season. I mean, that, you know, his numbers just weren't there. But he's, the thing with Rondo is he remains an inconsistent scorer. And to make money in this league, you have to score. And the Celtics certainly need to score. I mean, Westbrook could be would be the future guy if he ever came here, but, you know, other players would have to be involved. I'd just be very surprised. A lot has been made of Rondo's contract status and what it means to the question of him being traded. How big of a factor is it in the Celtics' decision-making? Is the lack of a contract extension for him a function of just fundamental uncertainty about his status, or is it a case of the current CBA just making it more beneficial for both the team and the player to wait until the current deal expires? I think they both benefit. Um, the Celtics need the flexibility, and Rondo is a very tradable contract. He's only going to make $13 million next year. Um, you know, for a player of his skill, that's a fairly low price. The other thing is Rondo, he hasn't said that he wants to leave, but he has said that he'd like to at least uh, dip his toe in the water and see what free agency is all about. You know, I mean, his whole thing was he was never really recruited when he was in high school. Um, Riptino sort of recruited him for Louisville, but then held out with the hope of getting Sebastian Telfair, which forced Rondo down the street to Lexington. But, you know, he wants to be romanced a little bit. He wants a couple of GMs to take him out to dinner, and you can't blame him, you know. Uh, But I think that's a situation that benefits both sides. I think, you know, the Celtics can offer Rondo the fifth year on a max deal, um, but do they feel he's a max player? It goes back to him not being a big scorer. Um, You know, he 
if you want to land other players, I mean, if we were ever going to get Kevin Love, I mean, he would be your max player. Would you give that second max contract to Rondo? I think Rondo sees himself that way. I'm not sure the Celtics do. And as it stands now, the Celtics roster is kind of an interesting mix of young players that may be part of the future, but may also be trade chips. Of course, guys that you mentioned earlier, like Sullinger and Olenek and Avery Bradley. There's some veterans that have some value around the league and may or may not be trade chips based on the status of their contracts. Again, like you mentioned, guys like Bass and, and Green, a whole bunch of free agents, potential free agents. And then, of course, Rondo, who could be a centerpiece or could be the next domino to fall in the rebuilding effort. It seems like the guy Guys that are the biggest locks to return next year, just by virtue of their contracts, are Gerald Wallace and Joel Anthony. How much roster turnover do you think we'll see this offseason? Are we looking at pretty much the same team next season with a couple of new pieces, or you know, might there be a major roster shakeup in the offing? I don't think you're looking at the same team. I think there's going to be significant change. Um, you know, Gerald Wallace's money is pretty much unmovable. I mean, they do have the stretch option under the CBA that they could use in him, but I don't think they're convinced they want to do that. Brad Stevens actually likes having him around for for the leadership. They also like having Chris Humphreys around, who is actually a guy who could get quite a bit in a free agency, but the, there's another guy that you could trade. I mean, that's the great job that Agent and his staff has done in terms of getting flexibility. You have all these expiring contracts, you have a lot of guys who are on unguaranteed deals. Uh, that's that's why they took guys like Cressy and uh, Chris Babb and Chris Johnson and gave gave them all three-year deals, none of it guaranteed. This is all fodder to potentially put into a trade. They have a $10 million trade exception. They can use that. So anything is really possible for these guys. Um, players are going to be available. You know, I I personally think they're going to have some interest in uh, Hayward from Utah because of the Brad Stevens connection. He's a restricted free agent. Avery's a restricted free agent. I'm not sure how interested they're going to be in bringing Avery back. Uh, he sort of he sort of priced himself out during negotiations. You know, they thought they were close, and then he pulled out. And then he got hurt, which, you know, he's unfortunately he's never had a healthy season. Um, but, you know, there's certain guys in this draft who, just to name one, Zach Levine from UCLA, who have a lot of potential as a, uh, as a two guard. If that's the case, you know, do you want to bring Avery back on a deal? I'm not sure they do. And if you had to guess and or had to bet, what do you think they end up doing with the six and seventeen picks? Do they draft players? Do they move those picks in a deal? And you know, um, you know, we've heard some of the names at six. You know, Noah Vonley, Aaron Gordon, Marcus Smart. You know, who would you kind of put your money on at this point? Yeah, I keep hearing people mentioning Aaron Gordon at that pick. I think that's too high for him. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a non-scoring four. Um, you know, and when you consider that. If you're going to go the power forward route, two other guys who one of the one of the following two are going to be there either either Lonley or Randall from Kentucky, and both are both are much more polished than Gordon. Gordon has athleticism on his side, but not 
much in the way of a finishing touch. Um, and if you are interested in the power forward there, then that means that you're moving Solinger or Olenek. I mean, you can't very well go into training camp with three young power forwards like that. Utah tried that a couple of years ago and ended up letting Paul Millsap and Al Jefferson go. So, you know, they... I mean, I like a name... I like, personally, I like a guy like Marcus Smart, who's a very tough player who isn't... does has to work on his jump shot, but is a proven leader. I mean, he's... He's the kind of player who could really have a lot of value on a young team. So they they have a, an incredible number of ways they could go. Um, although the one way they won't pro, won't be able to go with that pick is the area they need the most, which is a rim protector. There's only one of those, and that's Joel Embiid, and he's a top three pick and probably a top pick. Yeah, that's where I was going to go with the next question is, you know, much has been made by Ainge and, and even Wick about the need for a rim protector. And I think we even heard uh, Jared Solinger's uh, father chime in and say that the uh, the Celtics promised they'd bring a, a, a rim protector in. Earlier you mentioned Omer Sheik and, and we talked about Joel Embiid, of course, will be out of the Celtics range, and, and Noah Vonley are kind of the names you see. Are, are there any other names in terms of players that are in the league right now that you think might be a fit for that role? on the seas? How about somebody like a Larry Sanders? Yeah, uh, certainly a wild card. Another four is not a five. Um, I think Ajik is... I think they're going to revisit that. Uh, He's the one that makes the most sense, especially if you want a legitimate five. Um, You know, those comments by Solinger's father were a little off the wall, but... (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, you know, although, you know, the last thing you need is another year of Jared Solinger trying to guard in the middle like that. He has a hard enough time guarding fours. And, you know, setting aside a bigger scenario involving Rondo, what type of deal do you think it would take at this point to get a Sheik from, from Houston over to Boston? I think uh, Rondo, I think. You know, and it would be you. You obviously wouldn't just be getting a sheik. I think you'd, you know, they'd want Chandler Parsons. I'm sure they'd also they'd probably have to inherit Jeremy Lin, which wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, he he'd have a lot of popularity up here. Um, and if you're bringing in Parsons, what do you do with Jeff Green? I mean, they would like to move Jeff Green. I'm just not sure he's very. You know, based on his performance last year, and he's just one of the most inconsistent good players in the league. I'm not sure who will be interested in him. I mean, somebody might might take him as part of the deal, but he also makes $9 million a year. Now, if there isn't a major shakeup, any improvement in the team is going to have to come in the form of player development. Who on the roster currently is the most likely candidate for a significant jump in their game, do you think? Uh, I think I think Solinger, if he stays healthy, could be. It depends on what kind of shape he comes back in. Uh, he has a lot of weight to lose. I think he has recognized that. They've told him that he has to be in much better condition. He has to be able to get up and down. He has to be able to guard the position, which I think they have some questions about or some concerns about. Um, I think Olenek will get better with time, but 
know, you can't play those two together. You're way too slow. Mm-hmm. I think they have to add athleticism and scoring. Um, they should be getting both consistently from Jeff Green, but they don't. Um, it's, you know, Avery has shown that he, when he plays for long stretches, he can be a scorer, but I think they're also tired of being so small in the backcourt. I think mm-hmm. they'd like a big guard. You know, there are some good ones, um, some good shooters in the draft, uh, guys who are more natural at it than Avery is. You know, uh, a, name to think, a name to consider is Gary Harris from Michigan State. Um, I mentioned Levine. Uh, that's two. I mean, if you're going for a small forward, you're looking at a guy like Doug McDermott from Creighton, who seems to be rising up the board, although there's a lot of questions about his ability to defend the position. Um, and let's get this out of our minds right now. The guy is not Larry Bird. <laughs> um, you know, so they are, they do have offensively that one thing that became real apparent last year, they went through these long droughts offensively that would really kill them at the end when they were coming up like two, three, four, five points short every time. You know, they need finishers and, uh, they had a too few of those last year. Now, of course, Celtics have the number six overall pick as well as the number 17 overall pick. And, you know, it was interesting that some of the names that you mentioned seem to be, you know, kind of currently at least slotted kind of between those two uh, ranges. You know, guys like Harris and McDermott and, and even Levine, you know, have been mentioned anywhere from, you know, seven or 9, 10, you know, up to 15 or 16. You know, do you think there's going to be much movement in terms of teams maybe swapping picks on draft night? It seems like there's a lot more chatter this than maybe in, in past drafts. Yeah, um, and I think this draft, you know, Danny has said that he, uh, you know, he's been one of he's been one of the people pouring a little bit of water on how good this draft mm-hmm. actually is. But you know, he could be playing poker too. I think there's certain guys they really like. One guy I think they loved who's going to be out of reach and it's not going to be working out for them is Dante Axel. I mm-hmm. think. Uh, you know, he seems to be moving up. He's, he's, he might actually displace one of the top three guys. That's how hot his name is right now. Um, you know, so they're not, you know, they could dearly use a guy like Parker or even Wiggins, who has a few years ahead of him before he can really produce. You know, they just, they need a scorer. They just, you know... They don't have a guy they can rely on like they relied on Pierce all those years. They, they need somebody who can carry the offense during those slow stretches, and they just don't have it. Mark Murphy of the Boston Herald. You can find Mark on Twitter at Murph56. That's M-U-R-F-56. Thanks for joining us today, Mark. All right. Take care. Thank you. Great stuff, as always, from Mark Murphy. Jared, he didn't seem very optimistic that the Celtics are going to be legitimate players in the love sweepstakes. Is he just being a realist? Well, it's it's really just because Cleveland's offer, if it's out there, is so much stronger than the Celtics. I mean, the Celtics, I don't see much value in their draft pick right now. They, uh, The guys that are sitting there at, that, at pick six, most likely, 
are going to be guys that either they're going to kind of draft a guy that fits their long-term need that maybe isn't quite a value there, or they're going to draft a guy of value that is kind of part of a positional logjam, especially like Julius Randle is a guy that most people, or even Noah Vonley is a guy that most people agree would be in uh, kind of the best value pick at six, but those guys are already at a logjam position at the power forward for the Celtics. So if they can trade out, and get someone like Kevin Love or just trade out of that sixth spot and get a major value player, then that, that probably makes the most sense for them. And the other thing that struck me was of all the Boston media members that we've talked to, Mark also seemed to be the most unsure about Rondo's future in Boston. Should Rondo fans be concerned? Yeah, they should. And it's while I don't expect Rondo to be leaving this year, I do expect that he's probably going to be getting a better offer from a better team in the free agency period next summer. And you've, you've got to you got to seriously consider that he could be leaving in free agency. And then the Celtics might be in the same position as the Timberwolves. You know, right now they, they're not acting like it publicly, but I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that Rondo's staying quiet and Kevin Love is the one that's creating most of this noise on his side in Minnesota. So Rondo, I think is just as much up for grabs as Kevin Love is. It's just not as public. And I could see Rondo being traded any time before the draft, after the draft, midseason next year. It really could happen any time because I don't expect the Celtics to be trying to make the playoffs next year either. It's just not as feasible for them. And their their significant cap space doesn't come until next season. I mean, they've got cap space this offseason to try to bring in a good player or two. But if they want to make some major free agency moves, it's not going to happen to next offseason. So I don't expect them to be really contending for a playoff spot this upcoming year. Yeah, certainly if things go to free agency, anything can happen. I think the thing that kind of mitigates it a bit in my mind is, similar to the Marcus Aldridge situation, it doesn't really make sense for the Celtics and Rondo to agree to an extension this offseason. It hampers the team's flexibility. He can get more money when it goes, you know, when it goes to free agency. So, you know, in the back of my mind, I kind of wonder how much of this, you know, feet dragging around an extension is really just kind of natural function of the way that the CBA works right now. And the the Celtics might prefer that Rondo goes to free agency. They might want to be able to have that open space there on their salary cap so that they can decide whether they want to bring in two other stars and let Rondo go. So it it might be a mutual decision for Rondo to want to go to free agency. It could benefit the Celtics as well because we've heard pretty much nonstop over the years about all the issues with Rondo. And we've seen on the court the shortcomings of Rajon Rondo and even the mental shortcomings last year before he got hurt, or not the, two years ago now before he got hurt. I mean, he was playing he was playing very frustrating and mediocre basketball compared to his standards. So there there's a legitimate concern as to what the ceiling is for Rondo and what he wants his ceiling to be and how he wants to play the game. And I, I'm I'm not 100% comfortable with Rajon Rondo being my point guard on a championship team right now if he's going to be one of the two or three main components of my squad. Should be interesting to see how it plays out. Well, it's that time on Celtics Beat. Time to go around the NBA in five. Are you ready, Jared? Let's do it. All right. Serge Ibaka, thought to be out for the rest of the playoffs, helps turn around the Thunder's fortune in the Western Conference Finals. Surprising? No, not in the least bit. He is Serge Ibaka. He... I mean, what's been really impressive is seeing that that first game that he came back, the way that he was flying up and down the court, and you would see that after some play, he would kind of start to wear down a little bit. He would kind of have a bit of a gait and a step. But the way that he's playing through it has been remarkable. 
and his impact. I mean, just the way that he came out in that first game and hit what was it, his first five shots in a row. Serge Ibaka is an incredible player. They, the, the Thunder definitely made the right choice sticking with him over James Harden, despite what James Harden is doing in Houston. Ibaka fits that, that he just perfectly fits that role as that stretch, that offensive stretch player with incredible defensive impact. And it's a series again, and we know that San Antonio destroyed them in Game 5, and I would not be shocked at all to see Game 6 go back to the Thunder, and they win it pretty closely. But that's the kind of team that the Thunder are. They're basically a team that they're scrapping together right now. They're they're facing a team that is just, I mean, San Antonio is just like the, the epitome of a perfect basketball team. But the Thunder, their talent level and their energy is incredible. So it's going to be really tough to imagine the Thunder beating the Spurs, but Ibaka's impact has been unbelievable. The only thing that surprised me is we haven't heard any Willis-Reed comparisons. I thought those would, would be coming out of the woodwork by now. Yeah, Zach Lowe did an excellent piece the other day on Grantland talking about the defensive impact that that Ibaka really has on the Thunder and how that kind of changes them completely on that end. So didn't surprise me that they played a lot better with him in the lineup. Okay, so on the other side, we had Lance Stevenson having a lot of fun with LeBron over the series. Then he starts blowing in his ear. I mean, i got to get your, your take on this. Lance has got to be the NBA's version of that crazy guy in prison that everybody's afraid of and nobody wants to fight because you get no <laughs> idea what he's going to do next. Um, yeah, I mean, it was weird, but, uh, you know, I kind of like the fact that Stevenson isn't afraid to kind of go back and forth with, with LeBron and, and, you know, kind of is willing to kind of, you know, in whatever bizarre fashion, <laughs> try to uh, you get into his head a bit, and and honestly, I still believe that you know LeBron doesn't have the the, the mental toughness that I think a lot of folks credit him with. Uh, so you know, I, I don't blame uh, Stevenson for trying. I probably wouldn't have personally blown in in his ear. I might have tried something else. The old run, I test grabbed the shorts or something, but uh, it was definitely uh, added a little bit of levity to to the uh, Eastern Conference Finals. I thought it was hilarious. I loved it. I love that Lance Stevenson is doing this. I think it's to his own detriment because I disagree with you about the LeBron being mentally tough part. I mean, you see the way that Lance keeps trying to do all these little things, and we see Rondo do some of this stuff too. I mean, that, I, I feel like Lance and Rondo are kind of one and the same out there. But, I mean, the, the big difference is Lance has been kind of a mess in the, in the series. I mean, he's made so many mistakes. He he can't seem to figure out how to attack the Heat. I mean, he he kind of looks lost out there to me. He looks confused out there. And I think he's actually the broken link in the Pacers' offense. Meanwhile, LeBron has just been dominating and dominating and dominating. So, I mean, there was, there was that one game where LeBron was in foul trouble the entire time, and LeBron had a pretty miserable night then. But otherwise, LeBron has basically just been humiliating Lance Stevenson, and Lance has been humiliating himself. Who comes out of the West? Uh, San Antonio. I mean, it's it's admirable that OKC is doing what they're doing right now, but I I still like the I still like the Spurs to take it seven games again against the Heat. I have no idea what's going to happen in that seventh game. I don't think anybody does. I, I would expect the Heat to win the title again, but I just don't see any way that, especially after Game Five being a blowout, I don't see any way that the Thunder can win two more games against the Spurs. Yeah, I got to agree with you there. And if for no other reason, then 
wanting to see San Antonio win and maybe inject a little bit of attention back onto the idea of, you know, pieces that fit on a team and less around this kind of superstar-centric you know, team building that's going on and, and recognizing the value of what San Antonio has put together in terms of a bunch of guys whose games complement each other, who are all kind of on the same page with, with, with the program and willing to do whatever it takes. And just that offense, when it's working, is just so much fun to watch that I'd love to see them, them get rewarded. You, know, you can say the same thing about the Heat, though. And, I mean, they run their team just so perfectly. I mean, can they really be stopped from winning the title? I don't know. I, I think San Antonio was right there last year. We've talked about this on previous episodes, the Celtics beat. They were in, in you know, in, in every sense of the word, a, a Ray Allen desperation three-pointer. And before that, a kind of a lucky bounce or, you know, a, somebody getting away with a, a loose ball foul, depending on how you look at it, on the Chris Bosh offensive rebound from sending them home in six. And if anything, San Antonio looks every bit the team they were last year. They don't look like they've really, you know, taken a step back, whereas, you know, the Heat, while they've still, you know, looked tremendous at the times, are clearly still very, very dependent and overly dependent on LeBron James, and if he isn't able to carry the load, I could see them going down. And if there's one team that can figure out how to stop those guys, it's got to be the Spurs. I mean, they, they just, they're able to game plan for any situation, and they're able to execute their game plan for any situation. Well, another great episode of Around the NBA in 5, and that's going to do it for this week's edition of Celtics Beat. Music for Celtics Beat was provided by Colossandris Mesa, Ostravex, and Steph Legrateau. Be sure to follow us on social media. Our Twitter handle is Celtics underscore Beat. And you can like Celtics Beat on CLNS Radio and Facebook to keep up with the show. We'd like to thank our guests, Mary Schmidt-Boyer of the Cleveland Plains Dealer and Mark Murphy of the Boston Herald. For our staff writer, Eddie Santiago, executive producer, Larry H. Russell, my co-host, Jared Weiss, I'm Rich Conti. See you next Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, for another edition of Celtics Beat, exclusively on CLNS Radio.